Hello, listeners of Fertility and Sterility on Air. This is your producer, Michael Simone. And this week, I wanted to give you all a special look into the ASRM 2021 Scientific Congress and Expo, live from Baltimore, Maryland. We all know about the wonderful science showcased at this event, but one of the best things about ASRM that I love is that it's not only about the science, but also it's about patients and the mission of education, equality, and access in all of reproductive health care. So in this two-part episode, we bring you some interviews with people who help make this mission possible. People like Elizabeth Carr, the first IVF baby in the United States, as well as Sean Tipton, Chief Advocacy and Policy Officer of ASRM, and Dr. Gloria Richard Davis, one of the leaders of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force. And of course, Dr. Marcel Cedars, the new president of ASRM, in addition to some more people. In part two, we dive into the science happening at the conference. We have a great conversation with Dr. Sam Pfeiffer about the new Malarian Anomaly Classification System, and then dive into some interviews with some of the prize paper candidates, an ASRM Institute grant recipient, and some of the hot topics over at the conference this year. There's also a little treat at the end of part two, which I hope a lot of you enjoy. For those that were at the conference, this hopefully gives you a chance to hear some of the great speakers and authors that you may have missed out on because there was so much to do. And if you weren't there, then hopefully it fulfills this little sliver of missing out that you may feel inside. So without further ado, let's get into it. Enjoy. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Hello, ASRM 2021. My name is Serena Chen. I'm one of the Fertility and Sterility Interactive Associates, and I'm here with Dr. Emily Barnard. Hello. I'm from New Jersey, and please follow me at Dr. Serena H. Chen, and please follow Fertility and Sterility and ASRM on Twitter and Instagram. Emily Barnard is at... Dr. Emily Barnard. And we are trying to raise awareness with the Fertility and Sterility podcast and the Fertility and Sterility Interactive Associates on social media of some of the leading studies in reproductive medicine, reproductive health, and reproductive science. The Fertility and Sterility Journal, as you know, is one of the highest impact reproductive medicine journals in the world. So we're really excited to be here. We are. I know this is our first conference back in person with ASRM. It's been about two years now, and I myself am finding it just so joyful, honestly, to see my colleagues. I just felt a real sense of happiness yesterday, aside from all the outstanding learning that we've been doing here and all the plenary sessions, all the research that's being presented. It's just been great to be back. I agree. So many wonderful presentations, but... Anytime you have an in-person conference, obviously during the pandemic, we want to be safe. And I've been feeling pretty safe. I mean, ASRM, before we had the conference, we got the emails, we got access to the Clear Health Pass where we downloaded our vaccine information. So everyone at the conference is either vaccinated or 
recently tested or both. I had a colleague yesterday who had the sniffles and she's fully vaccinated, but she also got a negative rapid test before she came in. Yeah, I think I've been feeling very safe. Everyone's been masking and socially distancing when we can. And I think the conference has been doing a really great job at that. Yeah, we're, we're really happy. And I think talking to everybody, they, they feel the same way. So Emily, you've been here now since Sunday. Mm-hmm. What have been some of the highlights so far? You know, I have really enjoyed the talks that I saw this morning. Um, So Dr. Amanda Clark was speaking about her lab's work about in vitro gametogenesis. This is something I dabbled in during my fellowship slightly unsuccessfully for my project. (laughs) Literally making eggs and sperm in a dish. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. So the thought is, you know, potentially in the future, we could take a skin biopsy or even blood from a patient and through, you know, multiple complex processes that are working on being perfected right now, we could potentially turn those into eggs and sperm um, for patients who perhaps don't produce those themselves. That is amazing and incredible. I like such an amazing innovation. Literally, we could probably get little kits in the mail, right? And scrape the skin cells, send them off and make eggs and sperm, maybe even make embryos, do extensive pre-implantation genetic testing. That's one of the most popular topics, it seems like, Mm -hmm. at the conference today. And that kind of leads me to our first guest today, Elizabeth Carr. Elizabeth, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, Serena. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Carr. I'm the first IVF baby in the United States and a patient advocate with genomic prediction. So I'm here. I love that idea of patient advocacy. Emily and I are both very, very passionate about advocacy in women's health and reproductive medicine. So talk to me more about the patient advocacy part of what you do. Sure. So I always like to say that I'm not a scientist or reproductive expert myself, but I like to call myself science adjacent is always my term. Science adjacent. I like that. Science adjacent. So maybe that's a new hashtag. (laughs) (laughs) I job and passion is really explaining all of the different options out there and attending conferences like this and turning it into English, right, for patients to really understand. Because as we know, the only reason I'm here is because my mother was made aware by an OBGYN that this thing that had never been tried in the U.S. was actually, it worked in the U.K. Isn't that incredible? It really is. Yeah. It's such an honor to be here talking with you. <laughs> you know, you. literally... Elizabeth Carr is science at its best, right? <laughs> and and it's so exciting that, that you're here. So I think genomic prediction does have a couple studies, and you and I actually spoke about some of these controversies in PGT, and I think those things are being debated and discussed here at ASRM. Sure. So we do pre-implantation genetic testing. So we do all the normal genetic testing like PGTM, SR, but we also do polygenic testing. So we're talking about polygenic risk scores and embryo health scores and all of those things. And I think, you know, we're at the point now where patients just need to know what that means and what that option looks like. And I think we're in a really interesting point 
right now where we know it works. It's been well validated, actually more well validated than when I was born, right? (laughs) Uh, Which is really kind of funny to think about. And again, just educating patients about what testing options they have before they pick the embryo. And I always come back to the story of, you know, my parents did not have that luxury, right? They didn't even have really well-working ultrasound when I was born. And I was a very small baby, so they didn't know if I was going to be healthy or not. Um, And so to take that element of worry out of something that's already emotional and anxiety provoking is really, you know, what I'm so passionate about. That's amazing. I think that this is going to be a big, hot topic of discussion. PGTP was actually just in the Wall Street Journal because James Lee, I think, wrote an op-ed actually stating that PGTP should be banned. Polygenic PGT should be banned. And I think everybody here at ASRM, I don't want to speak for everybody, but ASRM and fertility and sterility hope that we can have a very measured and productive dialogue. I think all of you here at ASRM and on the amazing board of editors and the uh, everyone who publishes at Fertility and Sterility, that's one of the benefits is we have a group that is all passionate about reproductive medicine and reproductive science. So we don't have to say things like, let's do PGTP or let's ban it. We can say, what are the benefits? What are the risks? What are the, the costs? And how should we use this science to really help people and really improve outcomes, at lower morbidity and mortality, help healing. I'm really excited about all of those things. What do you think, Dr. Barnard? Well, I was actually wondering if I could ask Elizabeth a couple questions, because like you said, you know, IVF was really in its infancy and your parents really took a chance. You know, they knew that there was success in the UK, but here there hadn't been yet. But the N was very low at that time, right? It was, it was literally just... Well, Louise was a first. Louise Louise was a first in 78. Um, And then there were a bunch of babies born in Australia. I think my number, uh, Dr. Howard Jones and I tried to figure (laughs) it out one year. Um, We determined that I was probably 15th in the world. 15. So that's an N of... That's a very small N, right? Right. No <laughs> randomized placebo-controlled trials. That's there. right. <laughs> yeah. I imagine there was, you know, a lot of interest growing up from your doctors and kind of looking at, like you said, you were born small. You know, how was your development and all these different um, metrics that we try to assess those things in babies? Um, Elizabeth looks really normal today. <laughs> <He> does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was there a lot of kind of? Um, I guess, study of you growing up, you know, looking at different things? Yeah. So I definitely remember having um, the nodes on my uh, scalp when I was a kid, looking at my brain waves, um, basically every physical I had every year until I was an adult. They would take full blood panels, again, measure my brain waves, um, all of those. All so of those are your brain waves normal, Elizabeth? As far as we know. <laughs> as far as we know. Yeah. And so it's it's been really interesting because that's one of those things that, you know, was, was brought up in the early days of IVF. We don't know what the long-term health consequences are going to be. And that always was amusing to me because I, I came out just like everybody else. Yeah. Right. So... 
yeah, they were talking about that a little bit in the um, the gentleman who um, was a lawyer talking this morning after that talk on in vitro gametogenesis and that we just, in our field, we can't wait until we have right. a randomized control trial. We want to have evidence that we don't suggest there's harm, but we can't wait because then that would be holding back technology. So um, I think it's... We, yes, and we also have that issue where we are a woman's health field. And women's health gets a lot less funding for research. And I think that's obviously a a big push for ASRM about giving day and donations because we do rely upon a lot of private research in order to move our field forward because of the concerns about pregnancy, reproduction, and women's health in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still an ongoing battle for awareness and access, right? I mean, this is constantly something that I hear from patients who contact me personally that we butt up against all the time, that you don't know about infertility options until you are experiencing infertility, Mm -hmm. right? And so my goal has always been to bring the conversation so far into the mainstream that at least somewhere in the back of your brain, you've heard of various options. So it's a little less overwhelming when you do find out that you need an intervention. That is such a critical point, Elizabeth. I found that to be very true in all of reproductive health advocacy. For example, We have for fertility preservation for cancer patients, I think we it's been standard of care for so many years that all cancer patients should have fertility preservation. And yet we've done very poorly in making sure that we've met that standard of care because probably in this country today, still less than 50% of people who experience cancer in the reproductive age group are actually getting thorough counseling and options about fertility preservation. And I think this should not be a dialogue just between the oncologists and the IVF doctors. This really needs to be every single man and woman on the street knows that if somebody has cancer, oh, you should think about egg freezing. That's when we are going to really improve access for everybody. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's why it's so wonderful that we are being so active with fertility and sterility on social media, on these kind of platforms where patients are and making things really accessible for them. Um, And so that they, even if maybe their doctor isn't knowledgeable, because there's unfortunately still a lot of doctors, I think, who don't have the knowledge about fertility preservation and other options that we're able to offer patients. Um, so that they can, you know, the patients can maybe be armed with that knowledge themselves um, and take that back to their doctor. Yeah, because this is where the patients are. They are on social media. And I think as physicians, we need to get, we need to gain some comfort because you have to know that your patient has seen nine Dr. Googles before they show <laughs> up in your office. True. So if as physicians, we have all the knowledge and we are not putting it out there on social media platforms, our patients are then being misled by Dr. Google, who did not go to medical school. So I do think, um, I hope everyone will follow us on Instagram and Twitter and join us to magnify the voices for ASRM and the scientific community so we can raise awareness and education for our patients. Elizabeth, 
what other things do you want physicians to know? What do you want people to know at this conference that you find from your journey, from sure. the dish to here? <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing um, is something that my mother said to me that, you know, they really took a leap of faith and didn't, barely knew anything about the procedure other than like a one page handout, right? When they went through IVF. Um, and the only reason that my parents agreed to it was because doctors Howard and Georgiana immediately put them at ease mm. and gained their trust and let them know, no matter what the outcome is, we're going to take excellent care of you. And, you know, I think every patient that comes into a physician's office, that's really the most important thing. And, and not being afraid to allow the space for the dumb questions. You know, my mom always says like, I think I asked Dr. Jones every dumb question I could because I didn't know anything about this procedure other than there was a baby in the UK. Um, down to like, am I allowed to have, my mother's a coffee addict, am I allowed to have coffee? Um, and, you know, things like that. I mean, it was really unheard of. And so doctors Howard and Georgiana are probably two of the most brilliant minds in the field. And it was okay to ask them dumb questions. And they never made my parents feel uncomfortable in that. I love that story. It's so important. Um, thank you so much to Elizabeth uh, thank for you, joining Elizabeth. us. Yeah, yeah, First IVF baby, yeah. Elizabeth Carr. My yeah. pleasure. <laughs> All right. Good morning, podcast listeners. Uh, Pietro Bordelato, Interactive Associate Chief for Fertility and Sterility. And we're coming to you live from the ASRM 2021 Baltimore Convention Center. And we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with the newly minted president of the ASRM, Dr. Marcel Cedars. Dr. Cedars, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to see everyone, those of people who are here in person. It's a thrill. I, we understand that you just came down from the opening plenary session this morning and received the gavel. A lot to look forward to in the year 2022. I'm really looking forward to 2022. This has been such an odd couple of years. Dr. Rakowski, Dr. Taylor uh, really held the charge with COVID, uh, but it was a bit of an odd year. And so all of us are really looking forward of, of seeing our members, of traveling, and of really instituting the ASRM strategic plan. Tell us a little bit more about the ASRM strategic plan and what parts of it specifically you're hoping to, to advance in your, during your presidential year. Well, I think a couple of things that we're doing with the strategic plan is to really, one, focus on our members. How do we give the members value? Uh, because the field is changing and our membership is changing. And so we really want to give value to our members. That's a priority. The second thing is we're really going to focus on patients, which is the main reason that all of us are here. And so ASRM has paid attention to patients indirectly, but not directly. And so that's going to be a very big momentum. Obviously, we want to continue to support the Research Institute and all the good work that the Research Institute is doing. And we need organizational sustainability. I think my priority for this year is really going to be focused on the Center for Policy and Leadership. I think it's such a critical time for ASRM to have a voice 
And to have a think tank that gives us good evaluated data so that our arguments can be strong when we represent our members and our patients, and particularly given changes that are happening in our society in terms of reproductive health, ASRM having a very strong, educated, clear voice is going to be critical for the future. And later on in the podcast, we're going to speak with Sean Tipton, who will be uh, certainly leading the effort on the ASRM side. I know every ASRM president gets to leave a small imprint during their presidency. Is there something that you envision to be the, your special mark in the next year that you want to leave beyond what the strategic plan tells you you should be focusing on? Well, again, I think that my particular focus is going to be this, the CPL, the Center for Policy and Leadership, is sort of a new concept for ASRM. Uh, It's a thought at the time. It doesn't truly exist in the way we'd like it to. And it's interesting. It's a little bit full circle for me uh, because in college, I was actually a philosophy poli-sci major with a focus on regulation of biomedical research and the ethics of regulation of biomedical research. So for me, this feels kind of full circle. I'm coming home. And so my goal for this year is really to focus on developing and making sure the Center for Policy and Leadership has a sound footing and is actually putting us in a position where ASRM is seen as the place that you go to for information on reproductive health. The same way, for instance, you might think of the Guckmacher Institute. If you want to have information about abortion, that's where you go. That's where you get the quality information. We want ASRM to be that source for quality information about reproductive health. Dr. Cedars, I understand you have a busy rest of your day. Thank you so much for stopping by the FNS podcast. We look forward to sharing this with our listeners. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of our members for all they do for our patients on a daily basis. Hey, we're live at ASRM 2021. My name is Serena Chen, and I'm here with... I'm Emily Barnard. And our guest today is Sean Tipton. Sean, why don't you tell us your official title and what you do? The title is fairly cumbersome. I'm the Chief Advocacy Policy and Development Officer for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. In reality, that means primarily I I head up our government affairs and media relations activities and do a little fundraising as well. It's actually a pretty big job. And Emily and I are very excited to talk to you today because we're big fans of the advocacy efforts of ASRM, and we've had the privilege to work with you on those things. And and we've seen during um, our time, and it it hasn't been that long, you know, I think I I just joined the Advocacy Academy in 2016. And in that time, I've already seen just in my state, several laws passed to open up access to fertility care. So that's been really exciting. What about you, Emily? Yeah, so I got involved in advocacy with ASRM and Resolve as a fellow. Previously, I had done some advocacy work with ACOG, with the OBGYN organization, but was looking to kind of narrow my scope a little bit and and advocate for some more fertility-related coverage. And so saw some emails from ASRM about the partnership with Resolve and the Advocacy Day on the Hill, which has been virtual the last couple of years. Got involved my first year and have been state captain ever since. It's great. That's amazing. So, Sean, why do you think 
physicians should be involved in advocacy? Well, the first thing is I, I think physicians are often unaware of the tremendous impact that government policy has on their professional lives. I mean, you have to think about it. You are licensed by the state. Your training, most of your training was paid for by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And clearly both state and federal governments make a lot of rules about how you can treat your patients. And in the field of reproductive medicine, you have the extra added wrinkle of states getting involved in making determinations about who gets to be a parent and, and how all those things work. And so, so I think all physicians ought to be involved for the, in their own self-preservation advocacy. But I think mm-hmm. in reproductive medicine, you have a, a really an extra added uh, level of scrutiny that if you're not paying attention can become quite dangerous for you. Absolutely. And obviously just our ability to do our jobs and provide care to our patients is significantly impacted because without state mandates, we do not see really good coverage for our services. I mean, I think of it in terms of we play offense and defense, right? And on the, on the offense side, we try to create positive legislation, for example, things to force employers to appropriately provide insurance for reproductive medicine, which, as you all know, many of them do not. And so it's not our first choice, but it's kind of what you get forced to. Sometimes if, if they're not going to do the right thing on their own, we're going to help them come to that conclusion that they should do the right thing. And then, and then again, unfortunately, in the reproductive world, you have, there's an extra level of scrutiny, and there are active people and organizations out there who would like to get between you and your patient. Mm-hmm. And we have to try to defend against that all the time. The good news is, in general, defense is easier to play and it's harder to get things done. So I always tell new people, new colleagues of mine in the association lobbying business, always tell your bosses you're going to stop something because that's easier to pull off than actually passing something. But I think for physicians, you know, I, I can't imagine how frustrating it is to have a patient come in, get a diagnosis, know a treatment option for them, and then have them say, I can't do that because I don't have insurance and I can't afford it. And I think that must drive all you all crazy. It drives me crazy. But if you're going to advocate to change that, that can help deal with that frustration that you must be feeling whenever that happens. Well, that brings up a great topic that I actually did a roundtable on on Monday, advocacy as a treatment or as a solution for physician burnout. And it's not something obvious, but it's something Sean and I have been discussing for a while that exactly what you said. I think a lot of us deal with the loss of autonomy and meaning because we are fighting with insurance companies and dealing with EMR and billing every day. And if we can lift our heads up and advocate for our patients at another level in a different way, it definitely can give us a lot of purpose and meaning. And honestly, I think all three of us can say when we've done these that we actually have fun at these advocacy days. And it's a chance to connect and and collaborate with our colleagues. I think it really gives you a renewed vigor in your work that you're doing um, because we have amazing jobs, but they're difficult. I mean, I'm pretty new in my practice and, you know, you think about your patients constantly, you internalize their poor outcomes and you, of course, celebrate their good ones. But, you know, when you are doing that for 30 years or so, day in and day out, five days a week, I think it does get really tough. And I think to have these outlets where we can see that we are making slow but positive incremental change with legislative efforts is really amazing. Also, I guess personally, even just talking about advocacy with patients sometimes, they're maybe not aware that there are these options. I mean, Advocacy Day is a pretty accessible way for them to get involved as as one person. Absolutely. 
I've definitely had some experiences where I've spoken about it with a patient. This was in fellowship. She ended up coming to Advocacy Day and now is an advocate that participates every year. And I think you can take, as a patient too, you can take some of that power that's lost with infertility back by kind that's of advocating for yourself. such a wonderful point, Emily, yeah. because um, what that's one of the biggest issues that our patients deal with, one of the biggest mental stresses, right, is the loss of control. And we know that our patients that we work with on Advocacy Day feel like they're really taking back a lot of control and they're really making a difference for themselves and other people have suffered the way they are. So it's, um, it's, it's really touching and and so gratifying I think for everybody that participates and and lots of medical professional groups do what we used to call in the pre-COVID era fly-in days where mm. people would come to, to advocate now we do it virtually at least for a little while longer and and I would encourage everyone to participate in those ACOG does a really nice one AUA has a, a advocacy summit that, that they do that, that's pretty successful what's different with ours is the formal partnership with Resolve and and other medical groups don't do that. And when you do do the in-person visits on the Hill, it's noticed that the doctors and physicians are together. Yeah. The, and that's and we have all aspects, right? We have physicians, we have industry, and we have a lot of patients, individuals, and patient groups. And you're right. That's, that's really wonderful for all of us to hear each other's stories and to tell the healthcare staffers on the Hill about that. You're right. It does seem like it makes a big difference. And I don't know, Sean, do you want to go through some of the successes in the last few years? Because I think there have been a lot, there's been a lot of progress. No, we, we have done quite well the last uh, five to eight years. We've gotten a number of mandates. I, I think when you aggregate them, we can talk about more than 25 million people who have now have insurance coverage for either fertility preservation or IVF. Uh, because of state-passed mandates and efforts that were led by ASRM and Resolve and, and other organizations. We have a nice coalition of organizations that we work with, and, and we try to be efficient in the use of our resources, and we try to be smart in our political analyses of where we're going to make efforts. So in 2022, I, I'm here to tell you, if you live on the West Coast, you're going to hear from us because we're going to make pushes in Washington, Oregon, and California. Great. And I'm really optimistic that when you come to the ASR meeting in Anaheim in 2022, we're going to have three new mandates and have wow. a solid wall of infertility mandates on the West Coast. That's that would be phenomenal because we always think of government as moving so slowly and never getting anything done. But this organization in partnership with Resolve and the physicians and patient advocacy groups have done really accomplished a tremendous amount. But before I started, I was I always thought, oh, that's, you know, advocating for mandates. That's Resolve's job. What would I do as a physician? Physicians are not trained to advocate. Why? Like, what? How do people get involved? And isn't that like a little bit odd? Physicians advocating. You know, let me just say a couple things about that. The first thing that I like to say to people thinking about this is, my favorite amendment to the Constitution is the First Amendment, <laughs> and the First Amendment has the things that everybody is known for. You know, freedom of press, freedom of religion. Well, one of the things it says is freedom to redress, to petition the government for the redress of grievances. And if you're an infertility patient, if you take care of infertility patients, you've got some grievances. Mm -hmm. And so it is your constitutional right to go and tell the government what you want. And, and I think people should never forget that. It's a, it is a rare treat for us as Americans to be able to do that. And, you know, the, the other thing I would say to physicians is once you start doing it, it, it can seem a little scary. And, yes, there's weird sort of tribal anthropological norms that go around with <laughs> being part of the legislature and all that kind of stuff. We will coach you through that. 
Um, and, and it really, I, I think it can be a lot of fun. And what I see was, was people get over their initial hesitancy or reluctance. They tend to really like it and really become converts. And so there's lots of opportunities. If you don't want to do it with us, join your state medical society, join AMA, do it with other professional groups. There's lots of opportunities and lots of people who could use your help. Although I think Emily and I can both say, like, Resolve and ASRM just make it so easy for us. Emily, what's been your experience? Yeah, I mean, it's been very accessible. I think, like I said, the first year I heard about it, I just signed up. And it's it's a kind of a a one-and-a-half-day commitment, I would say, when it's in person. Um, And you meet with your state the evening prior. You already kind of know what your talking points are going to be. How do you know that, though? How do you know what to say and how to say it? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. They do instruct you. So the morning of the advocacy day, we have a training. Now, prior to that, you've gotten emails and you've gotten literature. We have um, what we call leave behinds that we leave with the staffers. So you're able to um, look through that information. Uh, Resolve does a great job in ASRM at so a kind of You don't have to it. memorize you a lot of things. You don't have to do yes. any work, really. You <laughs> just have to show up and be passionate because I think like you've both been saying, if we have not done advocacy before, we're very intimidated by it. You know, maybe we don't understand how government works or we don't really know how a bill becomes a law or what have you. But um, the fact that physicians are coming to an office, I think, um, can't be understated because we are professionals. We have a lot of training and experience. So I think when we show up in an office and they say, oh, wow, there's five physicians here and there's also five patients. And, you know, they, I think those patient stories are really critical, but also hearing from us as medical professionals and hearing our opinion where we're struggling to provide good care, I think that's really impactful. I've noticed that the staffers are do seem really fascinated by how our daily lives go and the challenges that we face. So I think anybody who's interested in Advocacy Day, I always like to tell people, you are actually already an expert advocate. You actually have all the training because what you face every day, the challenges and the obstructions, that's what we need to talk about. And you can do that off the top of your head. So you already know what to say. And we talked a little bit about the extra scrutiny that comes from working in this field. It also provides some extra opportunities, right? You're going to go in there and talk to staffers about sperm and eggs and embryos (laughs) and sex, and they are going to pay attention. (laughs) And I think I always forget, um, you know, when I first went that we are constituents So when you go in, you guys tell us, you know, this is your representative. You are a constituent. Make sure you tell them where you're from so they know that, you know, you're a vote. So you're not just, you know, representing ASRM and Resolve. You are actually uh, a constituent. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the government at all levels impact your professional life. So we literally, we have done work at zoning commissions, federal, state, and the UN. So it can be at all levels, but... I just want to make a plug particularly for physicians to get involved in their state. Mm -hmm. State legislatures make a lot of decisions that are important to you. Mm -hmm. And if you work at a decent-sized IVF clinic in a state legislative district, that's a big employer. Mm -hmm. And think about it. What's the cliche about politicians like to kiss babies? You're in the business of getting (laughs) them targets to kiss. (laughs) I never thought of it that way. You're you're producing future voters for them, so they're going to pay attention to you. That makes so much sense. So I like to tell people, well, sign up for the Resolve email list. There's also, are we doing an advocacy academy anytime soon? Like, what are we doing? Well, so we're going to, we will continue to partner with Resolve on Advocacy Day, and we're we're trying to nail down the date for that, but it'll be May or June. Okay. Um, 
And we're, are we going to get an email about that, all the yeah, members? As soon, as soon as we get the date ready and to tell the ASRM members, the things that are labeled as a bulletin, that means they come from my office in Washington. So if you want to ignore all this stuff about signing up for boring CME credits and stuff <laughs> and only pay attention to the policy and press stuff, then just read the stuff that's yeah, in the bulletin that comes to. That's true. That's the best stuff. <laughs> okay. You guys got that. ASRM bulletins. That's coming straight from Sean, and that's all the fun stuff. So we hope you'll join us. And this will be on loaded on the podcast. Take a look out for this. And we're so excited that you're here in Baltimore. Thank you so much, Sean Tipton and Emily Barnard. Um, we're really nice to work with you and looking forward to working with you and some more. Anytime. And I would just remind all of you who are ASRM members, I work for you. So feel free to contact me anytime. Yes. If you want to know what the hell the government is up to. You heard it here. He did say that. And I will be emailing you, Sean <laughs> Tipton. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Serena Chen here for the Fertility and Sterility Podcast. I'm from New Jersey, and I'm joined by... Hi, it's Eve Feinberg, one of the FNS On Air co-hosts, and we also have our special guest with us. Hi, I'm Andrea Sertesh from Pregnantish. All right, so I thought I would open up the conversation. As many of you know, today's podcast is really about bringing the conference live to ASRM. And we've had a mix of conference material, a mix of abstracts, and a mix of people who contribute greatly to the field. And so we wanted to bring Andrea here to talk a little bit about her work with Pregnantish and the work that she's doing with helping with patient satisfaction and physician communication. So I'll let you take it from here. Oh, thank you so much. We at Pregnantish reach about a million a month patients and providers who are trying and struggling to conceive. And we are a media site and a patient advocacy site. And we launched a survey in 2019 called Why I Left My Fertility Clinic. I have been a relationship expert author my whole career. I had a sneaking suspicion relationships played a part in patient retention, but I needed data to prove it. And with 1,100 responses and our uh, insights team, we were able to curate this data into, I hope, meaningful uh, workshop we created and relationship guidelines. And uh, both Dr. Chen and Dr. Feinberg uh, have been trained. Uh, and they're, you both have patient care at the center of your practice. And I'm really grateful you're involved in this program to bring free to healthcare providers who want to take it, thanks to the support of EMD Serono and Cooper Surgical. So, Andrea, one thing I always I thought was very interesting about your survey is that you did do some uh, really deep dives. This wasn't just an anonymous multiple choice questionnaire. So I'm just wondering if you could talk to us more about that. Sure. So I knew I'm a longtime author. <laughs> Content's very important to me. I knew that this would be more of a qualitative survey than a quantitative, though we needed those hard numbers to um, present, and we have them. We wanted the storytelling behind why people made decisions to drop out of treatment or to pursue it. Um, and, you know, I think the qualitative storytelling allows this program, I hope, to really come to life in a dynamic way because we now see that it wasn't as simple as, you know, when you, you see a stat that's not always very human. 
So we're, we're able to match the stats you see on, you know, 14% left because of access to care. But most of the respondents left because of the relationship they had not just to the doctor at the clinic, but the entire staff, the billing department, the front desk. Um, it, it was uh, much deeper than um, just the, the doctor. Can you share a little bit of those nuggets of what we as physicians and we as clinicians and for those who are um, in both academic settings and private settings, what we as clinic organizers can do better? I think it's so important to understand, and so many great doctors are here at this conference and do understand this, but just to reinforce that today's patient wants to be a partner in treatment. They want to advocate for their own health and journey and to empower them to do that, to listen, not just make it a unilateral talk for next steps, to discuss pain points. Like we ended up calling this this program how to have happier patients in less time. We understand that you guys as doctors can't sit for hours to talk with a patient. It, that's not the point of this course. The point of the workshop is how to meaningfully connect with a patient so he or she feels like a partner in treatment and feels there are options, there's hope, and they're being heard. So Andrea, you brought up a very good point about the second half of that sentence, in less time. And you and I have spoken about this a lot, that this is not just a program for patient satisfaction. This is about helping uh, providers to be more effective and in many ways, uh, how to address some of the burnout that we're experiencing today in healthcare. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, and that's a really rich perspective you brought, actually, to the, the guidelines we wrote, um, that it's not, it, it works both ways. We don't want physicians to be burnt out either, um, and they are so often. So I think it's really important to know that this workshop is designed with, with the healthcare providers in mind, that it, it's going to be a better experience and practice for you also when you don't have such angry patients. Um, we actually, you know, I'm a relationship researcher, so we know, and for those who don't know, it takes five positive interactions in a relationship to negate one negative interaction. There's great research on this. Gottman. Gottman. That's right. Dr. John Gottman. So... We use the five-to-one rule in the relationship guidelines. How can a practice interact with a patient in these positive ways? It doesn't have to be big. I always say to people in relationship advice I give, don't think in terms of all or nothing, you'll end up with nothing. So it's about like small gestures go a really long way. Knowing someone's name, remembering one detail they shared. These things patients report are so meaningful to them because they're so scared and anxious and overwhelmed already that that human connection and that relationship matters that much more. I, I love that um, the workshops give people little scripts. So I think that people can learn these things very quickly. And Andrea, like where, where can we go to learn more about this program? So pregnantishverified.com is the website where you can sign up if you're interested to take this free workshop. And um, we hopefully will be adding speakers in the future and continuing this. This is evergreen. It's not going to go away. So we hope uh, you, you find us, Pregnish Verified. 
Thank you so much. I just want to say on a final note, this, I think it benefits the patients to stay in treatment. It benefits the physicians to have less turnover and less chaos in their practice. And ultimately, IVF success rates are cumulative. And so dropout is the biggest barrier to the ultimate achievement of success. And so I really think this is tremendous work that you're doing to ultimately help our patients be successful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, podcast listeners, I'm Pietro Bordletto, Interactive Associate in Chief for Fertility and Sterility. And today at the ASRM booth, last day of the conference, I'm joined by Dr. Gloria Richard Davis. Dr. Davis, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to talk to you. We've been hearing about the DI task force for the last several months, and we have someone on the task force with us here. Yes. Can you tell us, our, us and our listeners a little bit about where the idea came from to form this task force? Because it feels so incredibly timely, and I feel like we should have had it a decade ago. But why is it here now, and what, what are we hoping to accomplish with it? Absolutely. And, you know, I think Dr. Michael Thomas is chairing the task force, but he will say that the idea really came from Paul Amato saying that we have got to do something different. I think all of us recognize that the demographics that we serve is changing. And in order for us to serve that demographics effectively, we really need to diversify our workforce. And so kudos to ASRM. For moving forward, I think Dr. Ricardo Aziz was the uh, CEO uh, at the time, or executive director at the time, who really did follow through and convene this task force. And Dr. Michael Thomas invited me to join and actually co-chair one of the subcommittees with the thought that we pulled together some of our key leaders in the field really across the entire spectrum, not just REIs, but lab, you know, mental health, et cetera. That are so often forgotten. Yes. It tends to be such a physician-driven organization. Absolutely. And if we're trying to work towards inclusivity, it starts with representation from That's exactly right. all of the membership. That's right. And, and when you think about it, when a patient enters the office, I'm not the first person they see. You're the last. I'm the last person uh-huh. they see. They encounter a lot of other people along the way. And so it's important for us to remember that because patients can be very quickly turned off by the receptionist or by whoever's answering your phone. So to make sure that we're thinking about inclusivity all along the patient experience. And for the goals of the task force, now that, the, that you have been convened, you have your subcommittees and members, what are, what are the most pressing things that the committee wants to work on? So the subcommittee that I am chairing is focused specifically on increasing diversity across the workforce spectrum. We are looking essentially to achieve population equity with regards to the segment of our population that is growing and that we know we are underrepresented in terms of the workforce. So that, that's something we're keenly focused on. So we did an environmental scan of ASRM and ASRM membership and really looked at who are we, mm-hmm. right? Where do we come from? Where, what do we exactly. Look like? That's exactly right. And so... Can you give us the highlights? What do we look like? What is the membership at ASRM? So we have a little bit over 8,000 members. And if you look at like domestic versus international, we're about three-fourths domestic, a fourth international. 
We have almost equal numbers in terms of gender, male, female. That's about a third of our members who don't answer any questions. And age, there's a, there's a full spectrum of age, but largely we're stacking up on the upper end, mm -hmm. right? 30, 30 to, to 70 plus, uh, if, you, if you look at it that way. What we don't know is our racial and ethnic diversity. And so there's been a lot of conversation about how to obtain that information. Certainly as new members um, join ASRM, there is a field which asks this question. When I pull the data, unfortunately, only about 120 some odd number members had answered the question. Prefer not to answer. Yeah. Other. So, or they just, you know, don't even see it, right? But the American College of OBGYN is pushing as well to do this. And so I think we're, we're right in time. And so what we're talking about doing is really aligning our collection of data with ACOG because they really are a feeder, right, to ASRM. So we want to make sure that, in fact, whatever standardizations we're using is in line with what ACOG is using as well. So that's who we look like. Well, who do we want to be? Does the, does the task force have a vision for what the membership could look like five or ten years from now? Yeah. So one of the things that I focused on is, is uh, our fellows, right? Because they really are the, the future of ASRM. So when we look at what our demographics looks like with, um, among our fellows, we're probably, if we look at, at uh, blacks or African Americans, we're somewhere around 6%. Hispanic, we're around 3%. Painfully so, low. Yes, yes. So we know we have to focus on increasing the number of fellows from those different communities. The, the goal, basically, we're talking about really launching a mentorship program, a formal mentorship program, that will reach some of the residents across the country. Because if you look at, let's say, OB residents that are black, there's about 13%, right? Hispanic, there's about 8%, right? So we need to really focus and be very intentional in trying to recruit from that group of residents. And they're not always at institution that have fellowship programs. So there's some distance to travel there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And many of them don't even think about reproductive medicine as an option. One of the uh, students that was here today specifically spoke to that issue that uh, Dr. Thomas grabbed her, you know, when she was on rotation and, you know, encouraged her to think about it. We had done a webinar and from that webinar, just talking about the task force and what we're doing, I got an email from a resident that was at Kaiser in the Bay Area in Oakland. And she was lamenting about the fact that she did not, there was no fellowship program where she was. She really didn't have a research mentor. And everybody understands the competitiveness of the fellowship program. And so she was reaching out to try and find a mentor in order to improve her competitiveness. And I'm happy to say she's here and she matched. So she's at UC San Diego. Amazing. Yeah. I had the pleasure of chairing a oral session yesterday that looked at access to care 
And the session ended up being largely about what the workforce looks like, what the mm -hmm. trainee workforce looks like. And there was a undergraduate student from Northwestern who was presenting an oral presentation. Yes. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, how do we get you to be an OBGYN? How do we get you to be an REI? Yes. And for her, her answer was so elegant. She said that we just need more people that look like me yes. throwing a ladder down. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's, and it's interesting that you say that because uh, one of our fellows, uh, third-year fellow at Duke, um, we have been pulling our fellows into programming, be, serving on the diversity task force, et cetera. I had nominated him or appointed him to moderate our fibroid sick. And he said, you know, thank you so much for doing that. I said, this is what we should do. And what I want to impart on you is this is also what you should do, right? So it doesn't end with you or I, that we continue Passing to on. reach back and encourage. What's the next big thing that we can expect from the task force in the next 12 months before we meet again in uh, Anaheim, California next year? So I think, you know, what we're going to do is we will reconvene. We'll see where we are. They, I, I didn't talk at all about the, uh, the second subcommittee, which really focuses on patient experience, outcomes, et cetera. And so I think we'll, we'll step back and look at what our recommendations were, what was actually achieved from those recommendations, what wasn't, and highlight the things that we still need to focus on like I'm talking about the demographics, we still have to continue to push and get that information. From a patient uh, perspective, we have a couple of different initiatives that's focusing on women of color in particular. And so we have, um, Faring has actually uh, convened an advisory board. So we're gonna be doing some work specifically looking at black women and black experience and also looking at black maternity and mortality, health. So those things will be happening in the backdrop. And we're going to tie it back to the diversity task force work and decide what we need to do to change and improve access, experience, and outcome. Because we know we have significant disparities in those areas. Dr. Richard Davis, before we, we, we let you go, if our listeners are listening to this podcast and want to get a foot in the door and want to get involved with the task force, what's the best way for them to get involved and contribute to the mission? We're, we're happy to have other people join us in this mission. Uh, feel free to either email me uh, at gricharddavis, is the way it's spelled, at uams.edu, or Dr. Michael Thomas, uh, or Dr. Maureen Siebert, because Maureen um, actually co-chairs the other subcommittee. Fabulous. I've been speaking with Dr. Gloria Richard-Davis, member of the DEI Task Force for the ASRM. Thank you, Dr. Davis, for stopping by the booth. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so Dr. Emily Barnard here and Dr. Serena Chen here at the FNS podcast, and we're really excited to have some of the ASRM Tech Committee members here. Please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Michelle Cho. Nice to meet you. I'm at Seattle Reproductive Medicine. I'm Dr. Preston Perry, and I'm with Positive Steps Fertility. Hi, I'm Daniela Gilboa, and I'm from AIVF. Oh. So what 
is the ASRM Tech Committee? What what do you guys do, or what do we do? Because I am also on the ASRM Tech Committee. <laughs> so all disclosure. So you're exceptionally familiar, but for those of you who aren't, we are navigating some of the technologic challenges that ultimately are facing all ASRM members. So you look at some of the things that are being sent our way for the conference. You look at artificial intelligence. You look at things for in vitro gametogenesis or even CRISPR. You know, and th this has not only implications for how we provide great care to our patients as well as communicate with them. For instance, what we do with media, but there's also the ethical component. You look at Jennifer Doudna, who was the Nobel Prize winner um, who opened up the ceremony, and she says, all disruptive technologies bear meaningful social responsibility. CRISPR is no different. And so I think that's something where we have to not only, again, navigate what can we do to make for more effective patient care, but and also distribute it to the members, but also make sure that it's being accessed and uh, distributed in the right ways as much as we can. Yeah, it's so hard to stay abreast with things as things change between social media and technology advancements for our, you know, our physicians, it's not something that we learn about in medical school or residency or fellowship. You train on the basic science stuff, but you're not really, you don't learn about the business of medicine and you don't learn about some of the technology things like uh, ransomware and things that come up in terms of... Ransomware, that's, oh. that's a really big one. And, um, you know, the tech committee at our last meeting, we talked about that recent... Um, lawsuit about accessibility of your website. And as a physician, ASRM member, we on the tech committee feel like, oh my gosh, everybody has a website for their practice, but they're probably not aware of this potential vulnerability. And it's our duty on the tech committee to try to help our members with this particular issue. Preston and, and Daniela, any other things, we're, we're also working on the website. I don't know where uh, Paul Jordan is. I was hoping he would stop by. But I, it's not just things like that. I mean, artificial intelligence, and again, you're, Daniela, you know, spearheading the AI subcommittee on this, but also even things like TikTok. What percent of REIs actually TikTok? And so what platforms should we be, and how do we balance the HIPAA implications and other issues while still effectively connecting with our patients through the media they prefer. Yeah, it sounds like your committee has a very broad um, sphere of things that it's looking at, which I think is really interesting. How do you disseminate your findings and things to the ASRM members? We're trying to collaborate with as many people as possible, and we are open for, we're so glad to be up here because we're hoping people remember that the tech committee is here and let us know what your challenges are and how we can help you. We are doing a collaboration with um, the ASRM social media SIG. This year was the first year for the social media summit and uh, Dr. Perry and I were talking, are very excited to say that for 2023, we will have a postgraduate course on social media uh, in medicine and we're gonna try to help everybody use social media better to communicate with their patients, to market their practice, maybe even to recruit subjects for your research study. Um, there's so many different uses of social media, but also how to stay safe. That's a big prerogative 
for the ASRM Tech Committee is always thinking about in this age of technology and HIPAA, how do we remain safe? And I know that's one of the top questions right. and concerns we get from our members. And I th there's so much more we want to add to that session. And I think if you have ideas for what you want and matter to you for emerging technologies, we want to be there and help address it and provide opportunities. But look ahead to 2023. I think we're going to have some great things there. And I, um, I just have to give a shout out to Dr. Camille Hammond and the Cade Foundation that did the social media summit. And that's one of the big prerogatives and benefits of social media is specifically advocacy. And ASRM, of course, is a huge advocate for women's health, access to care, and uh, diversity and inclusion in our care, I think, because of our particular technologies, uh, uh, we've all been connected to the LGBTQ community and other communities uh, before a lot of other medical fields were. So th that's, a, that's a very big priority for ASRM. And, and so we will have a smaller, probably a smaller session in 2022, but um, we're, we're just starting to plan the 2023 postgraduate course. So please let us know. This is all really exciting. I'm wondering, you know, if any of our podcast listeners would like to join the tech committee, what the process is for that, and especially if someone's a fellow still in training, is that an opportunity for them to join the tech committee? We all learn from each other, and I think everyone has different strengths. You know, that was the line for uh, Kagan for when... Uh, she was nominated to the Supreme Court. Uh, nobody has a monopoly on knowledge. We all learn from each other. Any of you who are interested, and I would say that goes beyond tech committee, reach out to ASRM, and you can. there are so many, Danny Mosley and so many other people who are in the leadership um, from the administrative side can find a place for you. And if you reach out to the wrong person, they'll forward you to the right person. And believe me, we need... Youngblood, we need emerging ideas in tech committee, but I would say everywhere. Get involved. Yeah. Reach out to Serena. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, um, well, we are, you know, Fertility and Sterility and ASRM on Instagram and Twitter. We're definitely looking for more followers. So please follow us and you can direct message us on Twitter and Instagram, Fertility and Sterility and ASRM. Um, so we, we'd love to have you, and that's a great way to connect. Yeah, and let us know what, what you're interested in and what you would want us to cover. I mean, in the past, we've done practice guidelines to kind of help our members know how to approach some of the... Yeah, those are actually relatively new. If you haven't seen them, the ASRM Tech Committee with two guidelines on, on social media and electronic uh, communication, and uh, those are... Because, again, safety is, is a big concern for our members, obviously, in medicine, with HIPAA and regulatory. So really take a look at those guidelines. And if you have some suggestions for other things that we need to address, we are hoping to address the password issue at some point. And, and also for guidelines, remember, a lot of people think, oh, I'm not in the senior ranks of ASRM where I can contribute at that level. Actually, it's typically a senior, a junior, and a fellow, all three working together for some of those initial broad strokes before it goes on to others. So actually, does, you may be intimidated by some of the greats you might get to join, but actually they will welcome you. And it's amazing how many 
people want to build up that next generation? I'd like Daniela to say something because, you know, we're, we're all physicians here and, and ASRM is not just physicians. Right. It's also industry, science, nursing, mental health professionals, genetic counselors. And um, so we do want representation from all those sectors in the leadership of ASRM. Okay, so hi, everyone. Um, I've been a member for a long time as an embryologist and now I'm representing the industry. And I think ASRM is doing a lot to support research, basic research, innovation, AI-based research for physicians, researchers, universities, industry. So just um, log in and be part. That's great advice, Daniela. Thank you. So everyone, we're so happy to have you here. I think we're, we're going to be running off to some talks now. Please connect with us again on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for part one of Fertility and Sterility on Air's special edition from the ASRM 2021 Scientific Congress and Expo. In part two, we talk about some of the science going on at the conference. Stay tuned. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.